Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and ad-free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. There's a lot we know about the universe and the world around us, but we also keep learning new stuff all the time. Uh, like, did you know we only have explored 5% of the oceans and we keep finding new species every year? In fact, last year in 2020, the California Academy of Sciences added 213 new plant and animal species to their tree of life. They include 101 ants, 22 crickets, 15 fishes, 11 geckos, 11 sea slugs, 11 flowering plants, 8 beetles, 8 fossil echinoderms, 7 spiders, 5 snakes, 2 skinks, 2 aphids, 2 eels, 1 moss, 1 frog, 1 fossil amphibian, 1 seahorse, 1 fossil scallop, 1 sea biscuit, and 1 fossil sea lily, and 1 coral, and 1 partridge in a pear tree. Okay, so now imagine you were living in ancient times and you ran across the skeletal remains of an animal, and you didn't know what we now know about all the different species around the world, or maybe you heard about an animal third hand from some traveler. You're trying to make sense of what you're seeing or what you're hearing with the limited amount of knowledge that you have. So you do what humans are great at. You justify, you create a story, you develop a myth, you find a reason for this thing to have the appearance that it has. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It might give you comfort or entertainment or religious guidance or moral support. The legends and myths that we've built around mythical creatures serve a purpose. Or at least they once did. Today we can easily take a look and, and try to figure out exactly what it was that they were looking at and created these myths around. And this isn't just fun and interesting. It also helps us to understand cultures around the world and gives us a little insight into what makes humans the way we are. For this episode, I want to look at mythical beasts that were based on real-life animals, and in some cases, real-life animals that were once considered mythical beasts. So some of these animals were, were totally legit animals that we know very well today, and then others were maybe just kind of conjured up after seeing a few skeletal remains. A few skeletons and an endless imagination can go a long way. And I'm going to rate them on what I'm calling the underwear scale, uh, in the sense that an old pair of underwear uh, stretches a lot, whereas a new pair of underwear might be a bit more tight. So basically, the more of a stretch the explanation is, the older the underwear. You get it. Because science. The first creature on our list is dragons. Daenerys rode one, King Ghidorah fought Godzilla, Puff was magical. Yep, we're gonna talk about dragons, those mythical beasts that fill our fairy tales and fantasies. Interestingly, almost every culture around the world has some kind of legend about dragons in their history. Uh, the first appearances of it came up in Mesopotamian and Greek writings. For example, the Mushkushu is a scaly dragon with feline forelegs, eagle talons and hind legs, a tail, a long neck, a horned head, and a serpentine tongue that appears in the Ishtar Gate in the city of Babylon from the 6th century BCE. In the Bible, there's a Leviathan, a sea serpent that spits fire from its mouth. King Agamemnon in the Iliad is a blue dragon on a shield. Because of their serpent-type bodies, dragons are often perceived as representing evil, or at least in the Middle Eastern and Western worlds. In some Eastern Asian myths, dragons are beneficent creatures, representing heaven and masculinity. No matter which culture they appear in, dragons are almost always reptilian. Anthropologist David E. Jones suggests in his book An Instinct for Dragons that it's an amalgam of three primal fears, snakes, predatory birds, and big cats. Now, another mythological creature that includes two of those fears anyway is the griffin. It's a mixture of a lion and an eagle. It's often depicted with the back legs, body, and tail of a lion and the head of an eagle. Some griffins have wings and eagle talons on their forefeet, while others don't. Since it was one part king of all beasts and one part king of all birds, it was sort of king of all creatures entirely. 
Griffins are found in mythologies around the world from the Middle East and Northern Europe, and they're known to guard treasures in tombs. Some legends say their feathers can cure blindness. But were dragons and griffins real? If you were a Scythian living near the Black Sea in ancient times, then yes, at least if you ran across their skeletal remains. Skeletal remains that today we would recognize as the bones of a protoceratops. Protoceratops was a sheep-sized herbivore from the Cretaceous period that would look very familiar to people like us that were brought up on Jurassic Park, but if you were back in ancient times and you had no concept of deep time and no idea what dinosaurs were and you ran across bones that looked like this, I could see it. I could see it. At least that's a hypothesis put forth by Adrian Mayer, a folklorist and a historian of ancient science at Stanford University. I mean, the modern field of paleontology is only a couple hundred years old, but those bones didn't just show up 200 years ago. They've been there this whole time. So yeah, it's, it's not unfeasible to think that somebody in ancient times might have run across those bones and come to some pretty interesting conclusions. Not everyone agrees with this hypothesis, though. Like Dr. Mark Witten, who believed that the Greeks came up with their version of griffins from living animals and not fossils. Witten wrote in 2016, the fact that living animal anatomies can easily account for all elements of ancient griffin depictions, there seems no need to invoke protoceratops as part of griffin anatomy. The mainstream view of griffins being simple chimeras of living animals has to be considered a far simpler and thus more likely interpretation of their form. For Witten, griffins were just a product of our human imagination. There are other theories, like whale bones in the past may have also been mistaken as proof of dragons before people knew what they were actually looking at. And then there are other animals like the Nile crocodile, which may have lived in a wider geographic area in ancient times. It's the largest crocodile species with adults measuring up to six meters long and weighing almost up to one ton. Also, it can do this thing that uh, they call a high walk, where it walks with its trunk off the ground and when it walks towards you, when it lumbers towards you, and to some people, you know, that could be interpreted as a type of dragon. A goanna is a species of monitor lizards found in Australia. They're predators with razor-sharp teeth and claws and can grow up to two meters long. They also have venom glands, can climb trees, and can quickly sprint on their hind legs. So it's thought that in Australia that might be a source for dragon folklore. Finally, there's another type of monitor lizard that could be a candidate for uh, the source of dragon myths. In fact, it's considered such a likely possibility that, uh, well, they actually named it a dragon. The Komodo dragon in Indonesia is an apex predator, first discovered by Europeans in 1910. They're the world's largest living lizards and can reach up to three meters in length and weigh an average of 70 kilograms. They have long tails, agile necks, and their tongues are forked in yellow. A couple of fun facts about the Komodo dragon. When it's threatened, it can throw up its stomach contents to reduce its weight in order to flee. Komodos also cannibalize their young, so young Komodos often roll around in fecal matter, coating themselves in a scent that adult Komodos are wired to avoid. A vomit-spewing, poop-smelling beast. Cool dragon. But in terms of the underwear scale, uh, how likely is it that dragons were based off of living creatures? Um, I'd probably say it's a pretty good fit. It's not that much of a stretch, considering that there were dragon legends all around the world and there are lizards all around the world. So I'd put it at, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd say maybe like brand new boxer briefs. Next up is the Cyclops. The singer Sheb Woolley scored a hit in 1958 with a song about a Cyclops, specifically about a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people-eater that came to Earth and wanted to join a rock band. And Ziggy Stardust thought that he was the first alien rock star. <laughs> you don't even eat people, Ziggy. Do better. By the way, I've always wondered, is it a purple people-eater or is it a purple people-eater? Because if it's the latter, he probably would have been really hungry. Unless he found the Blue Few Gates of Kentucky. Any fish, cyclops are featured in Greek mythology, most notably by the poets Homer and Hesiod. 
In Homer's Odyssey, the hero of the story, Odysseus, encounters a cyclops named Polyphemus, who's the son of Poseidon. Polyphemus lives in a cave, raises sheep, and eats men. In the story, he devours several of Odysseus's men before the hero and the rest of his crew escape using trickery and wine. You know that old trick of getting somebody drunk and then stabbing them in their one eye? That thing. In Hesiod's Theogony, the Cyclops and the Titans were the offspring of Gaia and Uranus. Uranus kept all the children in prison inside Gaia, but Cronus, a Titan, successfully overthrew his father with Cyclops' help. And their reward for helping? Cronus imprisoned the Cyclops in the Greek underworld. But then they helped Zeus, the son of Cronus, overthrow his father and become the ultimate ruler of the cosmos. I remember that soap opera. One meaning of the word Cyclops is circle eye, and the creature is always depicted as a person with only one eye in the center of their forehead. So, could an animal be responsible for the Cyclops legend? So, like many ancient creatures, the Greeks understood their world through myth building. If they found something in nature that they couldn't explain, they created a myth around it to explain how that came to be and why the world is the way that it is. According to Thomas Strasser, a professor of ancient art and archaeology at Providence College in an interview with National Geographic, quote, The idea that mythology explains the natural world is an old idea. The ancient Greeks were farmers and would certainly come across fossil bones like this and try to explain them. With no concept of evolution, it makes sense that they would reconstruct them in their minds as giants, monsters, sphinxes, and so on. So that's the basis for one hypothesis around the Cyclops. Austrian paleontologist Elthenio Abel came up with the idea in 1914 that the Greeks came up with the Cyclops myth based off of prehistoric dwarf elephant skulls. Why? Because they look like this. They were first found on the islands of Crete, Cyprus, and Sicily, and they're about twice the size of a human skull, and so it's easy- oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I see it. I see it. That's not an eye socket, by the way. That's a central nasal cavity for the trunk. But again, if you're an ancient Greek dude and you run across this in a cave somewhere, I mean, yeah, I could, I could see why you would think that after you clean your toga. Another possibility is the Dinotherium giganteum, whose fossils were also discovered on Crete. It was one of the world's largest animals to ever walk the earth, measuring 4.6 meters tall at the shoulder and displaying tusks that were 1.3 meters long. The animal is a distant relative to today's elephants, but unlike the modern elephant, the Dinotherium's tusks grew out of its lower jaw and curved downward and back up instead of up and out. And it also had a cavity in its skull for its pronounced trunk. Or to paraphrase Sheb Woolley's song, maybe that's where it was playing rock and roll out of the hole in its head. So the underwear scale for this one, I mean, the Cyclops is a Greek creature, a Greek myth, and these bones were found on Greek islands, and I can see it. That, that looks like something that would only have one eye, and I, yeah, I'm gonna give this one some tidy whities Next up is the Kraken. It could devour an entire ship's crew with one bite. It was 1,600 meters long. It was so big that many crew members would mistake it for an island. And when it wanted to feed, it would emit a strong and peculiar scent which may have just been poop. I'm talking about the Kraken, the largest and scariest ocean creature man's ever invented. The earliest known mention of the Kraken comes from King Sverre in Norway in 1180, when he listed it as one of several sea monsters lurking in the waters around Greenland and Norway. A 13th century Icelandic saga called Orvar Oder mentioned a mythical creature too named the Havgufa, with a description strikingly similar to the Kraken. And over time, the Kraken myth became more and more terrifying. Carl Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy, even included it in his first edition of Systema Naturae in 1735. Then in 1853, an animal washed ashore on a Danish beach. Naturalist Japetus Steenstrup took the animal's beak and scientifically described it as a giant squid, Architeuthius ducks. Squids are one of four types of cephalopods, which are considered to be very intelligent. 
You know what else is intelligent? Uh, my previous episode on cephalopods. It, it's just a, it's a phenomenon of writing. It's so good that Aaron Sorkin, yes, that Aaron Sorkin, uh, called me up after he saw it and said that he was not gonna do his masterclass anymore because after seeing that video, he knew that he was a sham writer. Whoever wrote that episode is just, is just the, the greatest writer ever. I had to put Aaron on hold though because I got a call from Phoebe Waller-Bridge who wanted to take the same idea and turn it into a movie or maybe a limited series about a squid that helps a detective solve marine-based crimes and call it cracking the case. I'll put the cephalopod episode link down in the description below if you want to watch it. And yes, Jason wrote this script too. So was the giant squid the creature that these sailors had mythologized all those years ago? Based on its size, probably so. Because not only is a giant squid quite large, but they're also rarely seen, which kind of helps build the myth around them. The largest giant squid ever documented by scientists was 13 meters long and probably weighed more than a ton. And because they do mostly live in the lowest depths of the ocean where there's very little light down there, they have gigantic eyes. They're 30 centimeters across. They have, they have eyes the size of dinner plates. In 2005, two Japanese researchers photographed Narcotuthia swimming 900 meters deep off the Ogasawara Islands in the North Pacific Ocean. And in 2012, oceanographer Edith Witter filmed the first footage of a live giant squid in its natural habitat. It was absolutely breathtaking. And had this animal had its feeding tentacles intact and fully extended, it would have been as tall as a two-story house. But as I said at the beginning of this video, only 5% of the ocean has been explored. So the Kraken could be explained as a giant squid, or maybe there's something bigger going on down there. There is, by the way, another species of squid called the colossal squid, which um, has more mass than a giant squid, but isn't as long as a giant squid. In terms of the underwear scale on this one, it's, it's, it's pretty tight. I think this one's pretty locked in. And it's aquatic, so speedos. Next up is gorillas. Africa is a huge continent. It's got creatures tall and small, and we're still finding new ones all the time. And back in the day, there were stories of this huge animal, human-like hairy creature with a bad temper that European explorers would come back to Europe and regale with tales of, of this crazy man-beast that they found in the jungles of Africa. Audiences would ooh and ah about it, and scientists would just dismiss the story as nonsense. This creature, was the gorilla. The first reported gorilla sighting from outside of Africa was from Hanno the Navigator, a fifth century Carthaginian explorer. After arriving in a bay called the Horn of the South, he found an island populated with what he called savages. Supposedly his crew tried to chase them down, uh, but they weren't able to catch any of them because the males were able to climb up trees and they, they threw rocks at the crew, actually. They were able to catch a few females who bit and clawed at them, but over time they got to be cool with each other and, and they all lived happily ever after. No, of course, they flayed and killed the gorillas and took their skins back to Carthage. The next known sighting took place in the 16th century when British explorer Andrew Battelle visited parts of West Africa. He described the animals as hairy monsters that looked like humans that were completely vegetarian. But still, the gorilla was considered a myth by Western scientists until the mid-1800s. That's when American physician and missionary Thomas S. Savage found some gorilla bones in Liberia and had them shipped back home. He partnered with Jeffries Wyman, who was an anatomist at Harvard, to examine the bones in more detail, and then they presented their findings at the Boston Society of Natural History in 1847. The scientific name that they gave to it was Troglodytes gorilla, which was uh, sort of a nod to Hanno's discovery back in the 5th century because the word gorillae in Greek stands for tribe of hairy women. It would be another decade before Paul de Chiroux became the first European explorer to see a living gorilla. But yeah, gorillas once upon a time were a cryptozoological thing. They were on the same level as Sasquatch, which is something that Sasquatch enthusiasts love to point to. 
I also feel like it needs to be noted that gorillas were only a myth to Europeans. The African natives that lived there were well aware of their existence. So if I'm gonna put this one on an underwear scale, I mean, it can't get any tighter than that. We know it's a real thing, so I mean, a thong? And last but not least is a cynocephaly. The Andaman Islands are located in the Bay of Bengal in the northeastern Indian Ocean. And according to explorer Marco Polo, a curious creature lived on the islands. As he wrote in his essay, Travels, quote, I assure you that all the men of this island of Amagandian have heads like dogs and teeth and eyes likewise. In fact, in the face, they are all just like big mastiff dogs. He described them as living on, quote, flesh and rice and milk, and that they would eat everybody that they came across. Interestingly, he wasn't the only person who described a race of people with dog heads. Around 400 BCE, the Greek physician Cetius, who also wrote about unicorns, wrote about men and women in India, quote, whose clothing is the skin of wild beasts and who bark like dogs. Herodotus claimed to have seen them in Libya. Alexander the Great said that he fought them in India. Pliny the Elder included them in his book Natural History, writing that, quote, they live by hunting and catching birds. A Chinese Buddhist missionary Hui Shen said that he spotted them on an island east of Fusang in 499 AD. And according to legend, St. Christopher was a man with a dog's head who wanted to be a human and eventually got his wish. So what the hell was the Sinocephali? Like what creature could have possibly inspired this idea? One theory is that they could have been baboons or macaques whose long faces kind of give them the appearance similar to that of a dog. Another theory suggested by Bernard Huevelmans in his 1955 book On the Track of Unknown Animals is that in Africa anyway, they may be from sightings of an injury lemur. The injury is a large species of lemur and he suggested that they could look like a tiny human with a big dog head. In his book, he wrote, quote, three feet high and with no tail but an inconspicuous stump, the injuries is an astonishingly like a man in outline. Like other lemurs or half monkeys, it has a fine and pointed muzzle, which makes its head more like a fox's or a dog's. He also speculated that the lion-tailed macaque, or wanderu, as it's called, could explain the legends in India. Even Sir David Attenborough suggested that the injury could be an explanation for the cynocephali in his 1961 docuseries ZooQuest. The proportions of their body with their very long legs were strangely human. And I remembered once again Marco Polo's dog-headed men. So yeah, ancient myths, they all come from somewhere. And I gotta be honest, I did not see some of these explanations coming when I started working on this video. This is just a handful of them, of course. If there's any that uh, you're a big fan of that uh, I didn't cover here, just talk about it down in the comments below. And there is an extra version of this on Nebula if you're subscribed there. So if you're anything like me, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you pick up your phone and you start scrolling. And if you're anything like me, 90% of what you scroll through is hot garbage. Because the world is 90% hot garbage. There's got to be a better way. Wouldn't it be great if there was a service that boils down the information of the day into quick, easily digestible nuggets that you could just read and then get started with your day? There is exactly such a thing. And that thing is today's sponsor, Morning Brew. Morning Brew is a free daily newsletter that's delivered to your inbox every Monday through Sunday. In other words, every day. But what about Fleeg's Day? There is no Fleeg's Day. It only takes a few minutes and then you're caught up on the latest tech and business news as well as just interesting stuff going on in the world. Like, did you know that there's now a fifth ocean? Yeah, the ocean around Antarctica was officially labeled as the Southern Ocean by National Geographic cartographers. It's actually the only ocean in the world that surrounds a continent. And now I have something to talk to my dad about. Also, the news is delivered in a very fun, casual style. It's not all stodgy and boring like traditional news. It's more like if, if the news is being delivered by your favorite clever YouTuber if you know anyone like that. Anyway, Morning Brew is fun. It's a nice little nerd brain tickler. I've been enjoying it and it's free. So you've got absolutely nothing to lose. Just click the link down in the description to subscribe.
Thanks to Morning Brew for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Patreon supporters, the answer files on Patreon and the YouTube members that are helping to keep the lights on around here, helping me grow a team, forming an awesome community. I love you guys. There's some new people that I need to shout out real quick. We've got Paul Wheeler, E. Larson, Lockie Davies, Liz Wollaston, John Toperfer, <laughs> Robert Anderson, Matej Sliney, Sh Shane Schleller, <laughs> John B. Leonard, Jittery Al, Bombastic Space Ninja, love it, Makeshift Apollo, uh, Cornelia Renzi, Connor Edwards, Lynn Beats, Anthony Evershed, and Ben Peterson. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and just join a cool community, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. T-shirts available at the store at answerswithjoe.com slash store. I don't shout them out enough. I really should. They're fun. They're great. Um, they get looks. People start talking to you. You make friends just by wearing a shirt. And it supports the channel. So go check it out. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here and you, you think you might want to learn more stuff about random things, um, Google thinks you might like this random thing. Or you might look at any of the videos down there that have my face on them. If you like them, what I'm saying is... I invite you to subscribe because I do come back with videos every Monday. And that's it for now. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.